Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. We are honored to bring Fred Spear to an episode on New Books Network and a podcast on history. I'm your host, Nathan Moore. The book we are analyzing in this episode is titled How the Biosphere Works, Fresh Views Discovered While Growing Peppers. And it is the culmination of decades of research into Dr. Spear's pioneering theoretical approach, which is known by the name Big History. He has been a senior lecturer in big history at the University of Amsterdam, where he has taught a course on the subject since 1994 and held an annual lecture series at Eindhoven University of Technology. Before becoming a historian, he was a biochemist doing studies on genetic engineering and the synthesis of oligonucleotides. Uh, Before you introduce yourself, Dr. Spear, Um, Please describe how you transitioned from a biochemistry background to cultural anthropology and social history. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Nathan, for having me on the show. So I'm a retired senior lecturer of big history. Big history is the history of everything that has happened from the beginning of the universe until life here on Earth today. And I've been teaching that for for more than 20 years. Uh, I started studying chemistry with my specialization, biochemistry in the 1970s. And during that study, I became increasingly worried that the study of chemistry might not offer sufficient solutions to all the environmental problems that we were facing, that we were beginning to understand um, during that era. And therefore, I decided that in order to understand that better, we needed to understand how we humans got ourselves in that situation. And to understand that, you need to understand the history of humanity within the history of our planet. And I didn't really know which 
specialization could help me understand the history of humanity at such a scale. At that time, I was not aware of world history because it wasn't taught here in the Netherlands. So I decided to go for cultural anthropology also because I, I wanted to find out how people in other societies were dealing with the environment. And I thought that cultural anthropology would, would offer a world view, which I think it did. What other studies did you complete while in Peru? Uh, and how did that help your latest book, How the Biosphere Works? So I went to Peru to study the way Andean farmers were living, how they were dealing with nature, and how that was expressed in their religion. And to study and understand religion, you need to think of that in terms of their social lives, including politics. So my study became a long-term study of, of religion, politics, and ecology, where I try to trace the history of that village using every information that I could find, ranging from the old church, parish books, to local regional archives, including in, in Seville, Spain, and of course all the academic literature that I could find. Uh, well, at the same time, I also try to live in that village as much as possible and share life with people, work on the land, uh, experience an incredible amount of, of most exciting adventures. So the result were two books, one in that long-term study of the village, placing it within human history as a whole, and the other one, a number of case studies that I experienced myself in a village. And I think it was an extraordinarily good preparation for big history, uh, not only because of all the things that I learned in and about Peru, but also because looking back from Peru to my own country, the Netherlands, I started looking at it in a very different way, a far more detachment. And therefore, I began to understand all kinds of patterns that I didn't understand before. So it led to a transformation also of my understanding of the Netherlands and, in fact, of all of world history. And therefore, I think it was an excellent preparation uh, for big history. When did you discover big history uh, and how does it relate to your recent study? Um, I first read about it in the Journal of World History, in which my later colleague David Christian, who coined the term big history, had written an article about it. That was when I was finishing my PhD thesis on Peru, which took up all my time and energy. Uh, but my supervisor, Johan Goudsblom, who had also read that article, happened to, to go to Australia. He visited David Christian and brought back his syllabus of the revolutionary course that he was teaching. And then he asked me whether we could organize such a course together at the University of Amsterdam, which we did. And that's how it all started. What about the biosphere? Can you give your audience an overview of what you're referring to when you talk about and what you're, you've been researching in the biosphere? Yes, first of all, what is the biosphere? That is the thin layer covering our planet, the thin layer of soil, 
air, water, in which we are living, which we think of our home, and which seems completely normal to most of it, of us. Yet, if you look at it from a more detached perspective, as this outer skin of a planet that's swinging through the universe, then you see how extraordinarily unusual that is. And to give an idea of, let's say, the scale of it, if you compare the Earth with an apple, then the biosphere is thinner than the skin of an apple. That's how thin it is. That's how very unusual it is. It's it's very precious area where all of that amazing complexity of life and humanity is possible in between, let's say, the inner Earth and the universe. That's where we are in between those two. And as soon as you realize how special and at the same time very limited it is, then you immediately realize it's important to understand how it works, especially because of all the environmental issues that we are facing today. And what is your argument in this book? Well, until now, we had many partial theories about the biosphere and how it worked, but there was no single comprehensive theory that would unite all these different theories. So it was a collection of apparently or seemingly unrelated or partially related theories that didn't really help us to understand very well how the whole thing works. And by sheer accident, I was extraordinarily lucky by growing peppers in my apartment here in Amsterdam five years ago. I started to see general patterns that could provide some kind of a united uh, theoretical view. And that was the major discovery. And it came totally unexpected. And of course, I can explain all of that uh, in more detail. And perhaps I should start by saying that when I looked at those plants and what they were doing, they were producing lots of leaves, as many plants do. And I realized that, yes, these these leaves are solar panels, solar collectors, right? That's how they pick up the energy that makes them go. And uh, how big would the surface be of all these leaves together? I started asking myself in August when I saw that the light, the sunlight was not really able to shine through all these leaves anymore. So I started measuring that and I found that the total surface of all the leaves combined was about 20 times as big as that of the flower pot they were sitting in. So then I realized that's really a lot If all plants on the planet are doing that, that means that they're all competing strongly for for the capture of solar energy as an emergent effect of that. uh, What they do is jointly tending towards maximizing the capture of that. So there suddenly I saw a general theoretical principle that is extraordinarily important to understand the history of the biosphere, yet had been overlooked so far as a general principle, at least as far as I know. And 
in addition, I saw other things happening as well. For instance, I counted the seeds, how many seeds would one pepper plant produce? And it starts out with one pepper seed, of course. Turned out that on average they would produce 400 pepper seeds. So that means that they could multiply 400 times in one generation. So if all these seeds were to be fertile and produce plants, I calculated that within 10 generations, starting with one pepper seed in my apartment, those pepper plants would cover all the earth, the land and the oceans. So that means that there is a very strong pressure being exerted by pepper plants to expand and not only pepper plants do that, all species do that. So if you look at the what is usually known as the, the food pyramid, it's an extraordinarily dynamic food pyramid. Not only are all these species trying to capture energy from the sun, from geothermal, or from each other, but also because of those non-linear aspects, they can expand very quickly. And a clear example in recent times is, of course, COVID, which has done that. And that is why it was such a problem for us, because it can expand non-linearly so very quickly. And it suddenly popped out, so to speak. And that is what, in principle, every species can do. There's an extraordinarily important principle again. And in addition, I would say that I realized that if you look at the plant, what it's doing, it's making all these leaves and it's uh, trying to capture as much solar energy as it can as part of what you can call its survival strategy, its way to survive the struggle for life, as Charles Darwin called it. And uh, you could say it, it's the business model of the pepper plant, but you can think of all species having a survival strategy, a business model. And then you can wonder how many of these business models, these survival strategies do exist? What are they like? Uh, how do they relate? And there you see another subject that has been almost completely neglected in biology, as far as I know, at least from a general point of view. Surely some people have been talking about survival strategies, but it is not a general theme in biology, which I think it ought to be. So those are several very important principles that, when combined, help you to produce a coherent view of the history of the biosphere, combined with all the other theories that already exist. So my book describes, first of all, these uh, discoveries and the implications and next, I try to write a history of the biosphere using all these principles. And to my delight, all the theories sort of fell into place, like suddenly puzzle pieces that all fell into place and produced a new image of the history of the biosphere, including that of humans. But that's perhaps an issue for, for a separate question. But if you want me to, I can explain that too. Yeah, what about humans? I'm always thinking about humans in relation to other things. So like HCI, which is human computer interfaces, is like a big thing in science and technology. So what 
is the human position within the biosphere and is there a name for it? Well, I'm not sure there is a name for it, but if you look at the history of the biosphere, it's probably about 4 billion years long. That's a long time. Rounded off, more or less. And if you look at the history of humanity, at most, we are talking about 7 million years. That is 1.17% of the history of the biosphere. So already a very short period of time. But if you think about the time of when humans started uh, doing agriculture, then you're talking about a far smaller percentage. And if you think about the history of, let's say, industrialization, it's even far smaller. And if you think about the history of using computers, that's, again, a fraction of that. So what you're talking about is a situation that is extraordinarily unusual in the history of the biosphere. As a very short period of time, humans have very deeply transformed it. And curiously, most people think that's the normal situation, but it is not. It is extraordinarily abnormal seen from the history of the biosphere. And what we're doing now is computers and the whole bit that is again producing a different transformation, you could say, a transformation of ourselves and also of the biosphere of which we are part. And perhaps I could add that if we were talking earlier about plants and in general life capturing energy and as a result jointly tending towards maximizing the capture of it, here you see suddenly one single species that starts doing that. So humans started capturing energy in ways that no other species had done before. First of all, by the domestication of fire, by setting nature to fire, occurring all kinds of fires that they uh, caused, but then also more control for, for cooking and uh, for making things. And I think fire control, and that's certainly not original, it has been a major transformation in human history, and it's the first thing that the species did that had not been done before by any other species. Uh, that's a point made by my former supervisor, Johan Goudsblom. Uh, I think he was uh, dead right. And and from there, you can see that we, we started capturing, let's say, wind and water energy, and doing all kinds of things with it, with windmills and water mills, with sailboats, you name it. And also with those means, we could deeply transform the world. Uh, with sailboat, we could connect the continents, and by taking plants and animals from one continent to the other, we could transform the ecologies, also because these plants and animals can reproduce you very quickly in a non-linear way. So they can s sort of explode on the new continent. You need only a small boat to produce an extraordinary change in the ecology of a continent um, or a few small boats. And then we started, uh, let's say, capturing the energy in resources such as coal and a bit later oil and, and a bit later nuclear. And, uh, and with the use of that also, let's say, with dams, with water energy and, and the like. And now with, with windmills, we're trying to capture more efficiently the energy in the wind. And there you see this species, we are, we humans, we are jointly striving towards capturing 
towards maximizing the capture of, of energy and doing things with it. And that is, in general, the process of what we find ourselves in. And that is so unique about humans. And that's how we have been able to transform the biosphere the way which we have done. Your idea came about after growing pepper plants at your home in Amsterdam. Is there something special about pepper plants in particular, or could it have been another plant specimen? You also wrote about self-pollination. Yes, I'm not really sure. It could probably have been many different species, but pepper plants turn out to be a lucky choice. Again, keep in mind, I never set out to discover all these principles. I just wanted to grow the pepper plants because I thought it was going to be fun and instructive and I wanted to observe what they were doing. But yes, they're they're good. They, they grow quickly. They produce lots of leaves. And also they were able to produce the, uh, the pots and the seeds. So it turned out to be a very lucky choice. And perhaps many other species could have been used as well. This is what I did. Perhaps potatoes would have worked. I don't know. Uh, But I consider it a lucky choice that worked well and to my great surprise helped me to recognize all these principles which forced me to rethink almost everything I knew. And yes, the self-pollination that you mentioned, yes, I had to help the plants a little because there were no insects or virtually no insects here in the apartment that could do the job. So I, I used a paintbrush, a small paintbrush to, to help them. I had learned that trick uh, many years earlier when I worked for a year at an ecological farm here in the Netherlands. What were your harvests like? Um, can you give a rundown of some of your statistical results from the harvest? Yes, uh, I think what we got is is roughly 40 or 50 pepper pots. I I planted three different kinds of of peppers in the beginning, red peppers, uh, jalapenos, and also these yellow, very sharp, uh, spicy Caribbean peppers. and the red peppers and the jalapenos produced the best. Uh, Caribbean peppers had a bit more of a problem, but we got a few of them. Uh, but I think for me, the most important aspect was the, the ratio of the seeds, so that one pepper plant would produce 400 seeds roughly. I, I counted them by opening all the pepper pots and counting the seeds. Uh, and that, I think, was the most important aspect of it because it, it showed how explosive they could be, how how much pressure they could exert on the environment. And I realized that that was not only what pepper plants were doing, but that essentially all species are doing that, including us. Yeah. Is there a Malthusian struggle for resources when it comes to the biosphere um, and human population growth? Would you agree or disagree based on your study of pepper plants? Well, the idea of Malthus was that because of population growth, the population would outgrow the resources and therefore they would find themselves in deep trouble. And I think with the aid of the Industrial Revolution and industrialization of agriculture, we have been able to postpone that moment. But it is certainly not gone. And 
as soon as we run out of critical resources, and that could be energy, but it could also be fertilizers, especially uh, phosphorus, then uh, you might find ourselves very quickly in such a situation again. So right now we may be living in a very lucky, fortunate situation that may not last very long. Have you heard of the prehistoric era and some of the ideas about oxygen and oxygen um, in the air just being way more uh, potent with oxygen? like large dinosaurs and animals that breathe more oxygen in the prehistoric era. Is there a correlation between that and now and our atmosphere? Is it affecting the health of plants and humans? Yes, there has been a period in the past where the percentage of oxygen in the air was considerably higher, and that made it possible for for big animals, also big flying animals, uh, especially insects, uh, to exist. and it has gone down since that time. Uh, there is a limit to how far that can go up, especially after plants began to grow on land, because if the percentage is too high, everything will catch fire very easily. So and by catching fire, then the oxygen is consumed and the, the level in the atmosphere will go down. So there's some kind of self regulation. An American ecologist, Stephen Pine, uh, has written about that in very enlightening ways. Uh, So what we're looking at today is a percentage of roughly 21% oxygen in the atmosphere. And because we are burning so many things, it's going down slightly, but not really that much, while the percentage of carbon dioxide is going up. But that was very low to start with, very, very low. So let's say uh, 0.03% or 3.5% or something like that. Now it is 0.04%. So if you compare that with 21%, that's still very little. It is causing us trouble because, as we all know, carbon dioxide is a potent uh, greenhouse gas, and therefore it, it sort of acts as a protective uh, layer uh, that does allow some solar energy to come in, but it doesn't let it out that easily. Uh, so therefore, the Earth is, is warming up, and that's what we're seeing today. At a retreat, there's a ridge, and there are plant fossils, you know, um, millions of year old plant fossils. Um if we're looking at prehistoric plants and photosynthesis, um, is there a difference between the way plants lived then and now through photosynthesis? Well, yes, there's been a, let's say, continuous change, which is typically part of the way things go in history. Uh, So as part of this competition for solar energy, as soon as there are mutations that allow plants to do better, then of course they have an advantage. They can suddenly pop out and then take over areas and replace others who aren't doing so well or push them back into special niches where the other ones can go that easily. And that's a process that you've been seeing all the time. And I think 
for us humans, a very important transition has been, as uh, Jonathan Markley has pointed out, uh, the emergence of grasses uh, 40 to 20 million years ago. Grasses have a, perhaps a more efficient way of capturing solar energy and also a survival strategy that allows them to survive in many different landscapes. And since that time, they, they started spreading. So we have prairies or savannas or the green meadows of Holland or whatever, thanks to that evolution that is fairly recent in the history of the biosphere. And not only that, but also animals evolved that started eating those grasses like cows, buffaloes, goats, or you name them. Um, and, and that produced a set of species, both uh, grasses and animals, that were utilized by humans to start the agricultural revolution. Because if we look at grains or rice or corn, they're all grasses. And if you look at the animals that we have domesticated, well, many of them were grass eaters. So the evolution of grasses starting roughly 40 million years ago was a major change in the biosphere without which humans would not done, would have done nearly as well in, let's say, producing agriculture and, and changing the biosphere. Geological fossil records were significant parts of your study, but what stands out to you the most regarding the fossil record? Uh, well, as, as many people know, let's say the, the so-called Cambrian uh, Revolution starting roughly 540 million years ago when suddenly the first big uh, plants and animals, complex plants and animals evolved. That is probably the biggest revolution of them all. Uh, and if you think of that period, 540 million years, seems like a long time. But if you think of this through the biosphere, 4 billion years, then we're talking about 15%, the most recent 15%. And that is what usually is the subject of biology and all the rest that came before it, the, the far smaller uh, species, most of which did not leave any traces or hardly any traces in the in the fossil record, that is by far the longest period. So you could say, if you look at the biosphere, at least until now, the normal situation was to be rather simple, actually. And this more complex phase is a very recent addition to it. Birds, insects, um, other critters, they affect the plant life. But what about humans? Are humans only bad influences? How has human civilization assisted the good health of the biosphere? You used the example of painting for your pepper plants. Yes, well, I think here we have to first consider that good or bad are value judgments, which look at things from, from a human perspective, uh, but if you analyze it as a general process, then these terms are not very useful for characterizing its history. But from a human perspective, we can 
say those things, but we may not always disagree. You may have very different views about what's good or bad than I have. So therefore, we have to be very, very careful when we start talking about good and bad and what's good or bad for the biosphere. And to be honest, I cannot really answer that question very well because what we did is favor uh, the species that we wanted, that we wanted to grow, like the, the grasses and the animals. Uh, and we started to eliminate the others that we don't like that much, that we can't eat, that are not useful for us. Uh, if that's good or bad, well, I think it, we would find it very hard to live in the biosphere as it was before humans started agriculture. So from a human point of view, agriculture was good because otherwise we would have had big problems, especially when human population started to grow and we were gathering and hunting, but we were reaching the limits of that system. Uh, so yes, from a human perspective, especially where we are today, then yes, I would not be able to survive in a situation without agriculture or other people doing that for me, in fact. So here we find ourselves in a very tricky area and I don't really know what else to say about it in terms of good or bad. What other stimuli did your plants respond to? Um, did you talk to your plants? What about the biosphere itself? Um, no, I, I didn't talk to my plants, but I, I provide them as much sunshine as they could get. I watered them. That was very important because after a warm day, they, they really used a lot of water. So I had to water them every night and gave them some fertilizer as well. That was also a good idea. But other than that, I, I didn't really do I supported them with, with sticks so they, could, uh, they wouldn't fall out on the sides and mess up the apartment. That's the kind of things I did. Uh, but other than that, I, I did not do anything. What about energy and thermodynamics? How are they related to your study of plants? Well, let's say thermodynamics is the study of energy and its transformations. And because plants are very much transforming energy, they capture energy from the sun and they transform it into the molecules that they uh, consist of and they make their own structures. Now you see very important uh, transformations of energy going on and therefore it's important to understand the thermodynamics of plants as it were. Thermodynamics is a science that evolved and people started using steam engines and they wanted to know how much energy from coal could be transformed into useful energy, these spinning wheels that would drive the factories. And that turned out to be a very interesting field that provided insights that went far beyond the study of steam engine. In fact, they turned out to be applicable to everything, the whole universe, uh, everything alive. And uh, the difference with, with many other things in the universe is that life seeks to capture its own energy actively. That's what we do, and that's what the plants do. Uh, and... I realized that by watching what these plants were doing, this joint tendency towards maximizing the, the capture of, of energy, that this could be called another law of thermodynamics. 
I could say a lot more about that, but perhaps this is enough for the time being. And then you could think of us humans as one single species doing that, which was exceptional, as I said before, totally exceptional. Again, as an another new law of thermodynamics. So what you see here is suddenly a theoretical structure evolving in which, let's say, classical thermodynamics uh, can be used to analyze the situation, but suddenly we may also find there are more laws of thermodynamics that could be formulated and help us to provide insights into how the biosphere works. And you mentioned cycles of change. Um, if we're dealing with cycles of change, then when was like the first major biospheric transition? Yes, I, I, I rather prefer, let's say, the phrase in terms of processes and changing processes and changing phases. Uh, so we could say that the emergence of life. Uh, on the surface of the planet, whether it came from outside or whether it happened here, we don't really know for sure. But the emergence of life was the first major transition because it turned the outer layer of the Earth into a biosphere. Uh, and we assume or suspect that this may have happened near undersea volcanoes, so-called black smokers, because they bubble up some kind of black smoke, and there's a lot of energy there and also substances that uh, are useful for life. And we suspect that that's where the first life forms evolved, totally dependent on those black smokers because they provided the, uh, the energy and the matter. But at a certain point, life forms learned to actively capture that. And that may have been the second major transition, the major phase change in the history of uh, the biosphere to be followed by a great many more, all described in my book. You also mentioned feedback loops, phaseology, which is a term that you described. Um, how do these relate to Greek philosophy and maybe some of the other um, scholars who actually get mentioned for you in your book? Yes, well, first, these feedback loops, that is an idea that, of course, has existed for, for quite some time, has been elaborated in many different ways. Uh, but I think with the general theoretical structure that I'm developing, they fit in really well. And you can, for example, start tracing what would have been the influence in on these feedback loops by the first organisms and then by the organisms that evolved. How would it have changed over time? So that's a major argument in my book. And then... If you think about these processes and these changes, then you have to think about, yeah, first of all, what is a process? That is a structured way of, of, of things that are happening. For example, our own bodies, we, our own lives. We have a certain structure in the way we live. We describe it as a process. And for instance, if you study at university and you graduate, then your life may change. If you don't stay at university, you have to find a job. So that may be an important phase transition, so to speak. Uh, and you can find processes and phase transitions everywhere as soon as you start looking for them. So what you need to do, I think, if you look at history, is to recognize 
the important processes, the important phase transitions, and very importantly, understand the criteria by which you decide whether that is a phase transition or not and what kind of phase transition. So you start thinking about all these things in very precise ways. For discipline, I would call it, uh, following, again, my supervisor, former supervisor, Joop Goudsman, uh, that help you to understand all the things in far more precise ways than if you just tell a story about it. And now returning to Greek philosophy, in the book I mentioned the, the very famous uh, pronouncement by the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, uh, who, according to Plato, we don't have any direct uh, information about Heraclitus, but only through the other Greek philosopher Plato, that he would have said, you cannot step into the same river twice. And Plato reformulated that in, in the way that... Uh, Everything changes, nothing stays the same, a very more general statement, which is fine with me. It's typically Plato, who was a far more abstract thinker. But I like the expression that you cannot step twice into the same river because it's very, very graphic. It's very expressive. It, it tells you, yes, because you cannot do that because the river has changed and you have changed. So you see that two processes that have changed and therefore everything is constantly changing in greater or lesser ways. And that is, I think, at the root of the process approach. And then it begs the question that I just mentioned, uh, how do you analyze all that in terms of processes and phases? Who is Alexander von Humboldt, and why is he important? Uh, Alexander von Humboldt was a Prussian scientist, explorer, who traveled a lot, but I think his major travels were through what at the time were the Spanish Americas, for which he got special permission from the Spanish king. He was also a mining uh, inspector. He was very experienced in that. And the Spanish king hoped that he would discover new mines and therefore more wealth for the Spanish crown. So therefore he got that permission. Uh, and he used that to explore important portions of, of South America and also Mexico. And he went to Cuba. And he basically looked at almost everything he found interesting plants, animals, but also human societies, uh, archaeology at the time still very embryonic. Um, so he was a very all-round researcher, had a very all-round look at things. At this, on the one hand, he was very interested in details, but also interested in the overviews, which I think is a very important combination. And... Uh, and he caused a, a revolution in, in that kind of thinking. And at the end of his life, he tried to summarize that in a book series that he called Cosmos. And I guess that rings a bell uh, because it was followed by, uh, by others who have used that term also more recently. Um, I think he was one of the great interdisciplinary minds that, of all times, 
and because of all these adventures that he did and, and all the things he did, he's, he's my personal hero. I, I really admire him a lot in terms of science. He may have had his flaws personally, but who doesn't? But in terms of the practice of science, I think he produced that kind of revolution, including that he, he had a keen eye for what we now would call ecology. He may have been one of the first, if not the first, to systematically explore that. Can you describe the food capturing pyramid? What other metaphors also do you reference in your book? Well, the, the general idea, the common standard idea is that people talk about the food pyramid and the food pyramid are, consists of producers. So primary producers are the plants and the secondary producers are the animals that eat the plants and the tertiary producers are the animals that eat those animals, etc. Uh, and that's important. I would not deny it in any way. But I realized by looking at those pepper plants that much of the structure is there because they need to capture the energy and also the matter, of course. The, they get it from the soil with their roots. So much of the structure actually exists the way it does because of they need to capture that. And that hasn't been emphasized enough, I think. So that's why I started calling this pyramid the food capturing pyramid. And then we can think of primary captors, the ones that capture the energy from solar or geothermal, and then the secondary captors who eat per the primary captors, etc. And then you also realize that we have to think about all the microorganisms because there are microorganisms who eat us, COVID, for example. So we are, let's say, a tertiary captor or a secondary captor or both. And then COVID is apparently a quaternary captor. It's part of the, the food capturing pyramid in a way that is not so easily, cannot so easily be described with the traditional food pyramids. You can put them in there, but you have to struggle a little. But well, if you think in those terms, like food capturing pyramid, it works a lot better. And it helps you to understand that, yes, there's all this active capturing, and it makes you also realize how extremely, extremely dynamic this pyramid is. Because if as soon as a species is successful, then it can pop out just like we humans did. Do you think Charles Darwin had it all right by the time he was researching within the Galapagos Islands? Uh, I think my understanding of that voyage, and I think I've read virtually all the materials that Darwin wrote about it, uh, is that by the time he was there, he did not realize the importance of what he found there, actually, after he left the Galapagos uh, and he went further around the world on that ship, the Beagle, he, he realized that uh, all, these, all these finches that we collected, he didn't even know where they exactly came from. So he had some, uh, someone else whether that person knew. And so they tried to reconstruct that. And they felt sort of bad that they had left. Well, he needed to find out more and he, he wanted to go back, but he couldn't anymore. Uh, so he realized that they had found something of importance, but I'm not sure 
where at that time he realized the importance of that for what later became his theory of uh, natural selection. But so that happened in retrospect. It's a bit like that I started out with my pepper plants without expecting anything like that, not even on my mind. Uh, and then after the first uh, experiment, after the plants started to die off and we ate all the pepper seeds, I didn't count the seeds at the time. So if I had been unable to repeat the experiment, I would have felt really bad. But there was another growth season that I could do that. So in the second growth season, I started counting the number of seeds that those plants produced. So I had, let's say, more of a chance than Darwin in making up for my deficiencies, so to speak. But that happens in science a lot because you, a lot of it is not really planned. And I think that's an important lesson for all organizations that that uh, that pay for uh, scientific research. You cannot plan it all in advance and expect an exciting result. Much of it happens by chance, and uh, and that you have to step aside and do something else and follow that track. And that is something you cannot really plan. So if you want to fund science, you have to fund risky plans. And that's why you can expect uh, the best, most exciting results, I think. But it's unpredictable, so it may also fail. It's hard to, hard to tell in advance. But I think there's one, there's one important aspect to it, and I think that has not been sufficiently recognized by many of those funding societies. It is the importance of the person that does it. I think without all the previous knowledge that they had accumulated, I would have cultivated those pepper plants and I would not have seen anything of importance. And I think that is so crucial. The previous knowledge that you have, the experience, the way you look at things. So that should be far more important in judging uh, research proposals than anything else. And, and young people can have that too. They may not have that much experience, but the most important things are curiosity, I think, and discipline in your thinking. It shouldn't be strict in the sense of that you restrict yourself to think, but you have to think in ordered ways. And it may be new ways, maybe totally new concepts that hadn't existed before, but they must be reasonably structured. So those, those things are extraordinarily important. And that is how I would judge young people if I got the chance to give them a chance, so to speak. If you were to point to a new Galapagos Islands of research, so to speak, where would it be or does it even exist? I cannot tell. Just like I did not expect that me growing pepper plants would yield a new book, uh, nothing like that on my mind. It is so unpredictable. That is the the funny thing about it. So I, I cannot really tell, but I would say look for talented people and give them a chance. That is what you need to do, and they will do that. We probably, I think we actually mentioned this already, but um, did you consult or look at other plants aside from pepper plants? Well, 
Uh, I also tried to grow avocado plants. It was another hobby of mine because I like avocados. I thought, well, let's give it a try. Uh, also because avocados come from the New World and they're also being eaten a lot in Peru where they're called palta. Uh, and that was also very instructive because avocados grow on trees and trees have a very different kind of survival strategy than, than plants that grow only one year, such as pepper plants. So that was very helpful, but unfortunately... The conditions in the apartment were not sufficiently good for the avocado plants to survive the winter. But it was also instructive. So I learned a lot from that too, but I don't think I would have discovered the principles that I just described by growing avocado plants. Okay, so you include images of Sudanese people who are burning the landscape and it reminded me of like sequoia trees in Northern California, um, but not just there, other places, particularly in California, where they have these threats of wildfires. Um, how is burning the landscape and forest fires, how do those affect the biosphere? Well, they have affected the biosphere very profoundly, probably from the very beginning, because you don't need a lot to do to set a whole landscape on fire. So as soon as people discover that, they may have started uh, influencing the biosphere very profoundly. And, but of course, there are also, let's say, natural fires that happen as a result of, of lightning, for instance, perhaps other causes. Um, so fire started happening in the, in the biosphere as soon as there was combustible, combustible material. And that happened after life started to uh, live on land, plants especially, um, and, and became bigger and, and more combustible. And that was, let's say, roughly 480, 450 billion years ago. So since that time, fires were possible on Earth within the biosphere. Before that time, it wasn't possible because there was nothing that could burn, actually. Um, so let's say natural fires must have started soon after that and, and, and still happen uh, a lot. But humans started to do their own things and, and burn the landscape and as a result started to influence the natural uh, fire regime as uh, the American uh, ecologist Stephen Pine called it. He's written very interesting books about that theme from which I greatly profited. Um, so you could say that uh, if you look at the Native American population in California, they may have burned the, the land regularly. And as a result, not a lot of combustible material would have accumulated there uh, because it got fired every year, perhaps, much like they still do in all the regions uh, on the planet. And as a result, the, the fire regime changed from big explosions of fire, so to speak, to far smaller fires produced by humans. But as soon as you stop that, then the, the natural uh, situation returns again. Then you get more and more combustible material. And as a result, you get bigger 
fires as soon as they start by human causes or by natural causes. So that, I think, is all part of it. And I think if I you look at California, I, I've lived there also for a little while, then people started living more and more in those landscapes and as a result become more vulnerable to those fires. So that's all part of it. And then if you have periods of drought like we have now, but may have happened before as well, but perhaps aggravated now by human-induced climate change, then all of that gets an extra boost. What about biodiversity? Is that as important as we think? Can a case be made for less biodiversity in terms of survival? Again, I would say it's a matter of opinion, what is good or bad. Uh, But if we think of it in terms of of long-term human survival on this planet, then it may be a good idea to have as much biodiversity as possible. One, because a more diverse biosphere is more stable, uh, therefore less likely to collapse if it consists of only one species and a few microorganisms and suddenly it gets attacked at one species. Then the whole biosphere collapses, right? And if you have a great many different ones, then, okay, one species may decline, but others may take its place. So as a result, a more diverse biosphere is more stable, but it's also genetically more diverse, more rich in the sense that it may contain all kinds of resources that may be very important uh, for us in many different ways, new antibiotics, all kinds of other materials that we could use. There are a very number of different reasons why it seems like a good idea to have a biosphere that is as biodiverse as possible for human survival and prosperity. There have been recent reports about uh, magnetic field sensory inputs, you know, like, for example, in human brains. But what about plant extrasensory inputs? Um, So we know about light and all of that, but what else do plants have for senses? Um, And also, how is Hubert Reeves a part of that topic? Yes, I'm not sure Hubert Reeves is part of that, but uh, plants are obviously able to pick up some signals. They can turn their leaves toward the sun, for instance, and do all kinds of other things. So they can react to certain uh, input. Uh, I'm not sure what else there is in terms of input. They seem to be able to communicate, pick up chemical signals emitted by other plants or by animals uh, and emit signals themselves. So some form of, of chemical communication is also possible, which is probably the oldest form of communication also among other species. Uh, other than that, I don't really know. I have to say I'm ignorant about that. Are you a proponent of greenhouses? Um, and also, what about space habitats or space settlements where greenhouses um, could be used to prepare food um, or, you know, a breathable air? Well, I think greenhouses may be a good idea. In, in countries where it's either too cold to grow those crops or too dry 
and because they can contain water and they may let in the heat and prevent the heat from going out. So that, that that's why they're greenhouses. So if you want to do that, uh, that is, is probably a good idea as long as you make sure that it doesn't deteriorate the soil or produces other adverse effects. And that's also what, what people are doing in space. And interestingly, about a year ago, I found out that NASA uh, was actually growing peppers in the International Space Station, uh, which is uh, was far, far very curious. Uh, I don't think they observed what I observed, uh, although they could have done that perhaps. Uh, but at least they were growing peppers. Uh, I'm not really sure why, because yes, peppers can be a nice addition to the food, but I'm not sure whether you can actually eat the leaves, but here again, I may be ignorant. Uh, but yes, you if you want to go into space for long periods of time and you don't have the regular supply by SpaceX, for instance, or other companies that send up stuff all the time, um, then you need to grow your own food and you may want to go for plants that produce the largest edible parts because that's what you want in the end. So perhaps lettuce or something like that, or I don't know what, uh, but lettuce doesn't provide a lot of calories. So would you go for potatoes or how would you do that? I'm not a specialist at all in this field and I know that People are working on that. So here again, I have to be very careful. I may be almost totally ignorant about those things. If you were to conduct your recent study in space, how would it go? Would things be different, do you think? Um, well, perhaps, uh, of course, in, in space there's no gravity, so you, that would certainly influence the, the shape of, of, of the plants, I guess. Uh, but also, I'm not sure how much you would let the plants do all by themselves what they what they were doing most of the time, which I did here, because there wasn't any risk in, in space. You want to control everything a lot more, so you would do you would focus on other things that that are important for your survival in space. For it is part of your survival strategy in space, right? Uh, well say that the kind of detached observations that I did, where I was not dependent on those plants for my survival in any way, uh, you probably wouldn't do in space. So I'm not, but of course I cannot tell. If, if you're an imaginative astronaut and you look into things, you may come up with all kinds of ideas. It's hard to tell. And also, what about the ocean floor? We have divers and researchers that can physically only go so deep um, but like if you go deep enough in the ocean there's a lack of sunlight how are these plants part of the biosphere in that situation well they're part of the biosphere because their life and wherever is life there's the biosphere or where the effects of life are that's the where the biosphere is but the question is where would they get the energy from and the matter and, and then there are two uh, sources. One is the, all the stuff that rains down on them, uh, sinking down from above, where from plants, 
and perhaps also animals that, that die, that earlier captured that matter energy. And it happens all the time. So it's constantly sort of raining down all kind of stuff towards the ocean floor. And anything that lives there could try to pick that up and, and live of it. And there may also be organisms that live off geothermal energy that oozes up from below and that then can next be eaten by others. So those are the sources of energy and matter that, that life deep in the oceans uh, can use. You also write about the history of bi- the biosphere before humans, which we've talked about a lot. But what about after humans? Um, there's a book um, by a Scottish geologist. His name's Dougal Dixon. Um, and his speculative books about after man. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, very few, actually. Um, first of all, as I said, it, it, it's a very recent phenomenon in the biosphere's history, our presence. And we don't really know how long that will last, but if it even lasts 1% of the biosphere's history, that would be a lot, uh, because we're still talking about, uh, let's say, 0.17%, so that would still be a lot more. Uh, but then you would expect that there would be life in and a biosphere after humans. And it all depends what the biosphere will look like at that point in time. How did we mess it up? Uh, What did we do to it? Uh, How may it recover? But what you would expect that unless life was completely extinguished on the planet, and that seems very unlikely because it's very hard to do that, uh, that it would bounce back in different ways, but because of this tendency to jointly try to go towards maximizing the capture of, of energy, geothermal and solar, that would keep happening. So you would say that that law of thermodynamics would kick in with a lot of force again, not hindered by the other law produced by humans because they are no longer there. So you would expect that to happen. And that as long as the conditions remain good enough for life to exist on the planet, that's perhaps one or two more billion years, perhaps even a little longer, uh, as long as the sun keeps shining and doesn't get too hot, as long as plate tectonics keeps uh, happening, then you would expect uh, new fans of, of, of life fanning out from the very small to more complex. What that would look like, I don't know. Is there such a thing as a simple organism rather than complex life as we always talk about? Well, let's say even the most simple uh, microorganisms are pretty complex, biochemically speaking, far more complex than, let's say, simple molecules. And even if you think of viruses, which are, in fact, DNA or RNA molecules with a protein cover, fairly simple by comparison, is still fairly complex in terms of biology. But what people refer to as as complex life is is life that consists not only of one single cell, like, like many microorganisms, but lots of cells, and that these cells change in form and structure and and as a result they start doing different things just like we have skin cells we have brain cells we have muscles and that all consists of different cells 
uh, well, if you look at, let's say, a simple bacterium like E. coli, that's just one single cell. So in, in that sense, it is far less complex than a plant or an animal. What kind of um, plant consciousness did you derive from your work? In other words, um, did you feel a connection to your plants at the end of it? Yes, of course, I do feel some kind of a connection to it in, in many different ways, actually. Also, because they reminded me so much of my Peru studies where people really like their peppers and the pepper sauces, which are called aji there. Uh, and, and later I tried to actually uh, to grow Peruvian peppers after I was able to uh, purchase them, the seeds. So yes, I, I feel considerable affection for them, especially because I was able to figure out all the things as a result of them. But I don't think there is something like uh, emotional response back from the plants. I think if you take care of them well, they will grow better, hopefully. Uh, but I don't think they ever told me, oh, Fred, well, you're such a nice guy. Thank you for doing that. I don't think it works like that. Uh, and if you have a, a pet, you may get such uh, responses in a way. Uh, so I'm, I'm not really sure about that, but I do have acquired a special feeling for pepper plants, that's for sure. <laughs> And what about now? Are you harvesting pepper plants or have you moved on to other things? Well, right now I'm not uh, growing anything really. Uh, writing the book was an extraordinary effort. It took everything I had uh, and I'm still recovering from that. And the last thing I want is new impressions, new ideas that upset my mind once again, maybe later. But I'm still trying to find a new equilibrium in terms of uh, my mental state because I had to rethink so much uh, of what I knew and come up with my new synthesis, which you can find in the book. And I think, so I've done a lot of reflection after the text was finished and I cannot change it anymore, of course, because now it's a book. But I, I still think that basically I wrote in the book what I wanted to write in it, and I right now I cannot see anything that I would really want to change. So that provides a lot of peace of mind, at least for the time being. But perhaps if I start doing things again, whatever I like to do, and I find, find out other things, things may change again. That's totally unpredictable. But for the time being, I've reached as I see it, a mental island of new stability. What online or in-person resources um, can people get to to learn more about the biosphere? That is a difficult question because I'm not really aware of systematic sites where you can say, okay, this is where I can learn about the biosphere. Of course, you can type in the word and see what you find. But there you see again the lack of theoretical coherence that existed before. It, and I think as soon as we have more theoretical coherence, and I hope that my book will help providing that, then it is easier to, to start such a website. 
So you can type in Biosphere, try to find all the books. You can look at, of course, all the books that I have uh, mentioned. Uh, you can also go at, uh, to my website, fredspear.com, uh, where you can find information on the book. And you may find all, some other references to especially uh, big history. So that's what you uh, could do. And that's also what I needed to do. I could not find one single website that I would say, okay, that is what provides me really with the information I want. And that was also why I felt I needed to write this book, to provide a better synthesis, hopefully. Are you still teaching in Amsterdam? And can people reach out to you that way? Uh, I'm no longer teaching. I'm, I'm retired. Uh, I do uh, offer presentations from time to time at the time currently still through online media such as zoom uh, and but people can reach me uh, through my email address which is info at bighistory.info and you can find that address also on my website fredspear.com so that's how people can reach me Anything in the future for you regarding uh, work and researching? Well, I have a whole bucket list of projects that I could start. But right now, what I see as the most important thing I would like to get accomplished is that we think I think we need urgently to start a series of research institutes researching the biosphere in a comprehensive manner. So everything together. We have that, for instance, already concerning climate change with the IPCC, but we don't have anything like that concerning the biosphere. So I think we need to start uh, founding biosphere institutes in every country on the planet where people research those things, those issues in interdisciplinary ways and come up with policy recommendations. So people can also ask them and say, okay, you know what? This is our problem. What do you think about it? How can we look at it? And, and then the Institute would start researching it and come up with answers. We don't have that yet. We have all kind of, let's say, more specialized uh, forms of research. And I think there are lots of excellent people doing that, but we don't have any comprehensive integrated institutes and given the fact that we are facing existential threat to our survival in the biosphere I think we really need to do that it seems like the biggest priority humans could have and we're not doing that so that is what I'd like to promote and I certainly would love to help getting that uh, organized and going that's great to hear. Uh, New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, thank you all and for welcoming Fred Spear to a podcast um, on history. Stay tuned for more episodes right here on NBN. Bye, everyone. <laughs>